Lord's Day. Well, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 16 this morning. Romans chapter 16 there in the New Testament, about six books in, and today the very last passage in this great letter. Romans chapter 16, I'll begin reading at verse 17, and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. Let's hear now God's word. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, In keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, thank you for... Uh, the glory of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and communicated to us here through your word. Thank you for the holy gospel. And as we've read these verses and come now to hear uh, them proclaimed, Lord, give us great grace to be not only hearers but doers of the well and to go of the word and to go out rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ, transformed into his image, knowing and communing with him and living for his glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the hardest things to do as a storyteller or as a writer is to bring your story to its conclusion. You have to figure out a way to resolve the tension in the story in a way that's satisfying. It can't be corny or cheap. And then you've got to tie up all the loose ends so the story comes to a pleasing conclusion. I asked a friend once what they thought about a particular movie that had been billed as, you know, a major installment in a story. And they said, well, it ended. It didn't really conclude. You could sense their lack of satisfaction. Even a prolific and successful writer like Stephen King has been criticized for having poor endings to many of his books. And, of course, preachers are no exception to the rule, are they? Who hasn't sat through a sermon? You didn't know how or if it was going to end, did you? Well... Today we come, that's not foreshadowing, don't get nervous. Uh, Today we come to the end of Romans. And perhaps we can sense the difficulty of knowing how to end such a great letter. In verses 17 through 20, Paul rather abruptly gives a warning about false teachers. 
And this is followed by his one and only reference to the devil in this letter, which triggers a benediction. That's normally the end of a letter. But then Paul goes back to greeting people. And the final three verses are one long doxology that functions like a benediction and has so many extra relative clauses that English translations have to work hard to make it coherent for us. So it's a little bit of a choppy ending here as Romans comes to a close. But despite the just back and forth nature of the end of this letter, one idea does come through. It's the same idea that's shown throughout this whole letter, the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. In fact, the closing verses of the letter, they sound a lot like the opening verses, where Paul celebrates how the Lord Jesus brings the nations to obey the faith. The gospel is making its way into the world. And so here in the letter closing, Paul shows us one more time how this works. So let's use our last sermon in Romans to consider how the gospel makes its way into the world. And Paul describes for us three roots. The first is through a clear presentation of the gospel. Paul begins this final section with a warning about false teachers. Now, as I said a moment ago, this this warning seems to come out of left field because Paul has said very little about false teachers throughout the letter. So it could be that he's just learned about them, or maybe he wants to put the Romans on guard should they come to Rome. Another idea is that after the greetings we saw over the past few weeks, after commending so many people who reflect the gospel in their life, Paul sees this as a good opportunity to warn the Romans about those who do not, knowing that such a people are already a danger, at least in some churches. And so Paul gives this warning in verse 17. Watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Now Paul doesn't tell us specifically what They teach. He does tell us that their teaching is divisive and that it is contrary to what the Romans have learned. So let's start with that last phrase because I think that's the biggest clue to what these people taught. Now, obviously, the phrase what or teaching you have learned, that is rather broad, so we can only guess at its meaning. But I would suggest it's a reference to the ideas Paul has developed. In Romans, the essential beliefs and practices that make up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why suggest that? Because remember, one of Paul's purposes in writing Romans was to lay out systematically in a very organized and easy-to-follow manner for the Romans the gospel he preaches. Why? Because he wants them to trust him and support him on his mission to Spain. So Paul lays it out as he does in Romans, and having done so, he concludes with this warning. I won't allow anyone to teach ideas that are contrary to this gospel. Now again, that forces us to consider, okay, well, which ideas are essential to the gospel? In this letter, Paul has focused on the following. 
the necessity of the finished work of Christ to rescue us from our alienation from God, faith as the means by which we receive God's gift and are delivered with the way we receive forgiveness and redemption, the new resurrection life that God forms in those who are reconciled to the risen Son and have sworn allegiance to him, the grace of God to bring all of this about and the ongoing work of the gospel to form the virtues of faith, hope, love, holiness, and unity among God's people as the renewed humanity. I know that's a mouthful, but even there, that's, that's just the gospel in broad outline, but the gospel according to Romans. And Paul is telling us here at the end, watch out for those who would divide the church and put obstacles in our way by teaching against those ideas. And the word obstacles, we saw that word back in Romans 14 and 15. It's sometimes translated stumbling block. Beware of those whose teaching causes people to trip up spiritually and possibly resulting in their damnation. You watch out for them, Paul says, or as the NASB renders it, keep your eye on them. Don't let them sneak up on you. And once you identify them, keep away from them, which means don't recognize them as Christians or don't let them have an influence in the Christian assembly. Now, look, these are tough words from Paul. And many people even struggle with Paul's counsel here. It seems unloving. It it seems unkind. I think it's a good reminder that there is a spiritual warfare component of Christianity which causes Paul to use some serious words. How does he put it in Ephesians? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And those forces, which are very real, they would want to harm souls by hiding essential truths of the gospel. And so this is just Paul's way of saying, hey, you hold fast to the faith that's been delivered to the saints. Now, We are a PCA congregation, and so our heritage in the PCA has been shaped by commandments like verse 17. So the PCA was formed by a previous generation of Christians who believed that the PCUS, or the Presbyterian Church in the South, had had abandoned the gospel. And so when they could not remove unbelievers from membership and influence, they withdrew, and they formed a new denomination. Some of you grew up in that background. Other of you come from maybe fundamentalist backgrounds, but they have very similar histories. And I say all that to say that heritage will prepare you to be on the lookout for those who would remove essential beliefs of the gospel. In other words, I said a moment ago, some people struggle with Paul's words here. Your heritage probably prepares us to be more accepting of the words that he writes in verse 17. We're more primed to be aware of that danger. So here's what that means. If that heritage enables you not to have a blind spot there, we have to be careful, though, that we don't commit the opposite error. So here's how one author puts it. There is an ever-present danger of false teaching in the church. Coupled with this, there is, of course, an ever-present danger that people will imagine false teaching when there is none, or they will label as false teaching 
something which just happens not to coincide with the particular way they are used to hearing things said. You hear the point he's making there? If you're primed to be on the guard against false teaching, you might start over-applying the principle and seeing false teaching in every nook and cranny when maybe it's just an acceptable difference. So Paul, again, will not tolerate those who deny the gospel, but neither will he tolerate those who add to the gospel. So in other words, to label certain issues as gospel issues or to treat them with the same urgency as gospel issues when they are not, that does damage to the gospel. And this is what Paul was getting at in Romans 14 and 15. He urged the church, accept one another. Maintain your unity despite differences on disputable matters. There are many matters that at the end of the day, they are matters of your private conscience. And Christians should not pass judgment on one another when they disagree. Furthermore, to go up one level, there may be matters that affect how we organize our church, such as who may preach, who can hold office, how do we do baptism, but even there. Those are matters of church organization. Those are not the gospel. And too many churches these days are elevating a whole host of issues, whether they be women's issues, politics, ministry strategies. Name the hot button issue. They're they're jacking it up to a level of gospel importance, and that obscures the gospel just as much as if we were denying it. I mean, it's interesting that Paul identifies, what's the first problem he identifies in verse 17? Those who cause divisions. We can divide the church by denying the gospel. We can also divide it unnecessarily by adding to it. So let's avoid both errors. Let's strive for that. Pray for God to give us wisdom to do that. And in order to help us get that balance right, Paul moves beyond a description of their beliefs to a specific description of their behavior in verse 18. He writes, Such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So false teachers do not serve Christ, but they serve their own appetites. So when people are driven by their passions, and when they are driven by their appetites, and they don't resemble the character of Christ, That is the profile of a false teacher. And quite frankly, friends, I can think of some people, sometimes even called evangelicals, that fit this picture. So I'm telling you, I I don't care what somebody says they believe. If they are driven by anger or power or obsessed with sex, they are not worthy of a following. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. So when you hear somebody talking or preaching or giving counsel or tweeting and you just can't imagine Jesus saying it like that, it just doesn't seem to fit the picture you get of Jesus in the Gospels. And I would encourage you, look elsewhere for your spiritual instruction. And in fact, Paul encourages us to cultivate an attitude of discernment like that at the end of verse 18 and end of verse 19. He writes, by smooth talk and flattery, They deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. 
But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. So Paul warns us about being naive. In other words, friends, you, you can't bury your head in the sand and pretend this stuff doesn't exist. And don't get me wrong, understanding those things and studying those things and being aware of those things, my least favorite part about being a pastor, hands down. But a naivety like that, to avoid it and not know what's going on, that is the naivete that false teachers exploit. So we can't be naive, but you can protect yourself. You can protect yourself by embracing good and resisting evil. Paul says there, be wise about what is good. In wisdom in the Bible, it often refers to skill or capacity. So in the Old Testament, Boaz, he had wisdom in making money. He was rich. Paul wants us to have ability, skill in doing what is good. I want you to be skillful in doing good. I want you to be unpracticed in doing evil. Does that sound like something Jesus once said? Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent and doves. So again, it's not ignorant. It's unskillful in evil. Because we don't practice it. And the more you say no to evil and the more you say yes to good, that will cultivate discernment and it will enable you to get a sense of those who are on the wrong path. False teachers who through their teaching or through their practice aren't according to the example of Christ. So cultivate that discernment and watch out for those dangers. And if all this seems intimidating, like that is a big task, Paul gives us this promise, this benediction, smack dab in the middle of this discussion. Maybe he knew we'd need the encouragement. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. If there is an element of spiritual warfare in the Christian life, how good to know that those who swear allegiance to Jesus have a victorious king in their corner. And that language of crushing Satan under one's feet, well, that that alludes to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, something that took place decisively when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, the prince of this world will be driven out. But why then does Paul say that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Didn't this happen already on the cross? Well, there's a sense. Yes, it did. But there's a sense in which the progress of the church contributes to Satan's defeat. As the gospel triumphs in our lives, so Satan and those who follow his ways are defeated. It reminds me of how the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains the petition In the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We pray it every Sunday, and here's how they explain it. We pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So, friend, every time you bow the knee, every time you say yes to King Jesus, even in a little thing, Satan's kingdom is pushed back. And that's because the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us. So that's how the gospel is going to make its way into the world, through clearly articulating what is and is not the gospel. Here's the second way. Through people who embody the gospel. 
So maybe with this negative picture of false teachers still ringing in our ears, Paul quickly presents us again with a list of people who embody the life of the gospel. Maybe this explains why Paul interrupts the greetings to address the false false teachers. He, He wants to sandwich the negative picture with the positive ones. So in verse 21... Timothy sends his greetings to the Roman congregation along with Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Now, these men are all part of Paul's missionary band. We actually read about most of them in the book of Acts. You're probably the most familiar with Timothy. Remember him? He had the the believing Jewish mother and a Greek father, and he accompanied Paul on several missionary journeys. He was imprisoned with Paul. He probably did ministry with Paul after his release, after the book of Acts ends. He's even listed as a co-author of six of Paul's letters. So a very important person. Lucius is mentioned with Paul in Acts 13. He's one of the prophets through whom the Spirit gave the command, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So he was at the very beginning of Paul's missionary's journeys, prophesying that Paul should go out. Jason welcomed Paul to his house in Thessalonica, and then he got beat up for it. And Sosipater, that may be the Sopater of Acts 20, who accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey. I tell you all that for this reason. Remember what Paul is doing as he travels to Jerusalem. He's bringing this important offering, an offering from the Gentiles for the poor Jewish saints. These men who greet the church here, they're probably delegates from the different churches who will escort Paul with this collection for the saints. So that would be why he greets them. This offering is a big deal. It will show the triumph of the gospel in bringing these people together. We also have a greeting in verse 22 from Tertius who wrote down this letter. Now, wait a minute. I thought Paul wrote this letter. Well, it was common in the ancient world to hire a scribe who would write long, important documents like this. Sometimes they would just take straight dictation. Every word you said, they would write. Other times, they would exercise some choice in how the content was composed. That may explain why some of Paul's letters sound very different from one another. Well, Tertius is the scribe who wrote Romans. And in this case, he is also a believer. And lastly, we have greetings from Gaius who possibly hosts one of the churches in Corinth from which Paul writes, and Erastus, the city's director of public works. And I love the reference to Erastus because archaeologists have actually discovered a block of stone in Corinth that reads, Erastus, in return for his edelship, laid this pavement at his own expense. And an edel was an elected official who maintained public buildings. So we actually have a a source that refers to this Erastus, the time, the place, the description, everything matches up. Here's a Christian in a place of civic responsibility. And again, I give you all these details, not just because it's interesting, but in order to paint this picture that we considered last two weeks, these are the kinds of people who reflect the transformative power of the gospel. And please notice the different kinds of things they did. You had missionaries, 
people who gave themselves to the work of the gospel. You had people who cared about mercy ministries, people who worked to deliver an offering from poor people. You had people who contributed to the work of the gospel. And then you know what else you had? People who simply worked to make their communities a better place. Erastus' job was to take care of the public buildings in Corinth. So all that variety, all those different ways of serving in God's world for the glory of God's name, that's how the gospel makes its way into the world. And one last way then, the gospel also makes its way into the world through its own power. Through the power of the gospel, the gospel goes forward. And I get this from the benediction that closes the letter. Paul says a lot here. It could be its own sermon, but we won't do that because everything he says here connects to what he's already said in Romans. In fact, as I said at the very beginning, these last three verses, they almost copy the first seven verses, and we've referred to those often. So we can simply summarize the main idea that emerges in the first line. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. The word establish, it means to make someone inwardly firm, to make someone committed. The gospel calls us to our initial allegiance to Jesus, and it also causes us to be firm in our commitment to him. The gospel provides that basis, that source for your spiritual strength. And when we explain the gospel and when we preach about Jesus Christ, that does good for Christians. Why? Well, a, n- a number of reasons, but, but just two. One, because it celebrates God's faithfulness. This message is all about God. A message that was hidden but now revealed in the prophetic writings. So in other words, something that God's people, they could anticipate it, but they had to wait for the accomplishment of it. And they were somewhat surprised when it came about, but it was also consistent with what God had promised to do. So it puts God's faithfulness at the front and center. But it also then secondly creates your faithfulness. This message produces the obedience That comes from faith. Again, a phrase right from the beginning of the letter. The obedience that is faith and the obedience that flows from faith. It's all one package that focuses on Jesus. And this message does good for your soul and it brings glory to God. So let's rejoice as the gospel does its great work in us and as it makes its way out of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel, the good news, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. I pray that you would bring forth much fruit from the work of the gospel among us. Make us gospel people, people whose confession, whose beliefs, whose lives whose practices, whose thoughts, whose goals and aims and ambitions are all shaped by the gospel. And maybe that will be, as we walk with you year by year, different from how we've always imagined it. Maybe you'll show us surprising new things 
Maybe it'll grow us in a way we had never uh, thought of before, but we would surrender ourselves to you. We, we would swear allegiance to you and ask that you would make us gospel people. Father, I do pray that you would keep us faithful to the gospel as a church, as a presbytery, as a denomination. Help us not to deny it or diminish it in any way. Help us to get it right. And may our interactions with you, our our care as shepherds, our ministries as deacons, our work uh, with missions, may it all be shaped by love uh, for and loyalty to the gospel. So show us how, Lord. Teach us how can the gospel affect our lives or our church or our community, our communities, our families, our workplace, our very own souls. Lord, show us these things today as we rest and meditate on you and as we go out into the work place to serve you, to love you. Lord, give us your great grace and thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. And let's close with singing hymn 521, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, uh, 521, the tune there on the left side of the page. Stand with me, please.